Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with noted author and editor Stephen A. Schwartz and host Michael Lerner. Stephen Schwartz, welcome back to the new school. A pleasure to be here. Stephen, we're sitting uh, in your beautiful home on uh, Whidbey Island in the town of Langley, just north of Seattle, uh, where you live year-round when you're not traveling, and where my wife, Charlotte, and I spend about three months of the year. And uh, as I've gotten to know this community over the last five years, um, you are certainly one of the most um, interesting uh, creative people I've met on an interesting and creative uh, uh, <laughs> island, uh, a remarkable community of people. I'm going to take a few minutes just to read part of your bio because it situates our conversation. You are uh, a scientist, a futurist, an award-winning author, a columnist for the journal Explore, and editor of the daily SchwartzReport.net. And for over 40 years, you've done consciousness research. You're one of the founders of Remote Viewing and the Anthropology of Consciousness. You're the 2017 recipient of the Parapsychological Association's Outstanding Contribution Award. And you're on the faculty of numerous uh, uh, organizations of higher education. Um, you've worked with the Samueli Institute, with Saybrook University. Uh, you've been the di executive director of the Rhine Research Center and a senior fellow of the Philosophical Research Society. But also, very interestingly, you've had government appointments, and this will be relevant. Special assistant for research and analysis to the chief of naval operations, consultant to the oceanogra oceanographer of the Navy, author of 130 technical reports, 20 academic book chapters, four trade books, including The Secret Vaults of Time, The Alexandria Project, Mind Rover, Opening to the Infinite, and The Eight Laws of Change, which was the winner of the 2016 Nautilus Book Award. You've also uh, just published a novel, which I have in my hands, called Awakening, uh, a novel of aliens and consciousness, about, uh, as I understand, how aliens would see climate change. And I understand you've just finished another novel. That's it. So you're a prodigious uh, researcher with an extraordinary work ethic. And the Daily Schwartz Report, to which I subscribe, is a remarkable piece of work. So I'm very grateful to welcome you back. My pleasure. There are many directions we could take because, as I said to you over lunch... Um, I think we share three things in common that are relatively rare uh, to be combined. Um, the first is we both have what you might call progressive values. We believe in democracy. We believe in justice. We believe in a, a just, ethical, democratic society. And we're actually deeply committed to that. But secondly, what doesn't often go with that is that we're both uh, deeply connected to what you can call realpolitik, to realistic appraisal of uh, the situation of the United States and the world, um, and, uh, and likewise to behavioral science research. Um, and the third thing, which is even rarer in combination with this, is that we're both uh, interested in, uh, convinced of, 
and familiar with the research literature on non-local consciousness. And you've been a pioneer of that field. So this combination of deeply progressive values, a realpolitik analytic capacity, both for politics and behavioral science, um, and at the same time, uh, a deep interest in non-local consciousness, that's an unusual triad of interests. Yes, I, I guess it is. Yeah. I, mean, I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, I think yeah. you're probably right. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk with you about this time, and I, I, I hope we will continue these conversations, but um, I'm immersed right now, uh, as you are, on an ongoing basis, in um, futures research and in looking at um, futures. And uh, a colleague of mine, Pete Myers, and some colleagues of his have started something called the FAN Initiative, which is looking at uh, the future, and not to put too fine a point on it, they believe, uh, and with good reason, that uh, it looks increasingly likely that we're going to experience um, a global collapse in the not-distant future, that the vectors of climate change, population, uh, how many more years we have of, of fertility for land, uh, a dozen different global vectors like that are pointing in very uh, negative directions. Uh, and so I wanted to talk with you uh, about um, uh, not, our, not so much our hopes and prayers that we find a way out of this, but what are the most likely scenarios to play out both nationally and globally which may well represent um, some quite dystopian um, projections uh, over the next 20 to 30 or 40 years. So I, I, with that, I'd just like to ask you to start. Uh, let's, start uh, let's start with the global issues before we get to the United States. Globally, what would your projections be if we don't somehow almost miraculously awaken to non-local consciousness and become, as in the Eight Laws of, of uh, Change in your remarkable book, Eight Laws of Change, How to Be an Agent of Personal and Social Transformation. But suppose we don't get critical mass for Eight Laws of Change, that there are many people who do that, like the Quakers that you've pointed to and many others. But suppose we don't get critical mass for a global social and local change. Where are we headed? Let's start globally and then move into the U.S. Okay, well, you know, it's very interesting, Michael, that you asked this. If you had asked me a month ago, uh -huh. I think I would have given you a different answer. But I have just returned from China, uh, where I spent three weeks. Um, the government brought me over to speak at some conferences. And that was a real eye-opening experience. So I would reassess, I have reassessed what I, my answer to that question from what I would have given a month ago. I would say this globally. I don't think we're doing enough to deal with climate change. Mm -hmm. I think we've passed... Uh, the tip point 
I mean, these the melting of the the poles, the sea rise, all of that. So I think we are in for massive change. Mm-hmm. But when I look at the world, I I see quite different responses. Mm-hmm. I note with some interest, and I I mean I think this is important that. China and much of Europe has made a commitment to have no carbon-powered vehicles on their roadways after 2040. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be very significant. It's going to uh, run in parallel with a second thing, and that is that increasingly in Europe and in China, Asia, Generally, there is a growing conversion to non-carbon power for residential factories, uh, uh, office buildings. So I think what we're going to see is the um, is it's like we're at a crossroads and some countries are going down one lane. You know, two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I was, I could not take them both. Mm-hmm. Robert Frost's great poem. Um, and other countries are, and particularly the United States, are clinging to carbon and the installed capital base that the corporations who, um, who basically now control the American government uh, are committed to do, I mean, to hanging on to as long as possible. So I think we're going to see um, massive change, massive dislocation, enormous migrations, um, either because of too much water or not enough water. For instance, in China, um, Uh, It was made clear to me that one of the major reasons the Chinese are so concerned about Tibet is not religious. Indeed, one of the things that really struck me about China is that it is a country that has absolutely created a firewall between religion having any role in in governance and in government policies Mm -hmm. and the state. So that's actually, if you look at the United States, that's quite unusual. But their interest really arises from the fact that the Himalayan hydrology is collapsing with the uh, melting of the glaciers. And that about, oh, uh, depending on how you calculate it, somewhere between one and a half and almost as much as two billion people are dependent on the Himalayan hydrology, and and what's going to happen? What is happening is that as it melts, first there's flooding, and then there's no water. So those people aren't going to all just lie down and die; they're going to move. And the Chinese see massive population migrations, and more than anything else, my takeaway from China was they fear social instability. Mm -hmm. So 
that's what's driving their policy in Tibet is that they want to stabilize it so that you don't have literally millions of people pouring into central China as a result of the collapse of the Himalayan hydrology, lack of water. In Africa, you see increasing droughts and resulting in migration. I, I, I looked the other day and uh, the best calculation I could get was that there are already about 35 million climate change refugees in the world today and that that number is expected to go up exponentially. So um, throughout the globe, as sea rise occurs, all of the coastal metropolitan areas are going to be severely impacted. Countries like Bangladesh or some of these island nations in the Pacific are literally going to cease to exist. I had a conversation not very long ago in the Netherlands with a physicist who said to me, you know, we actually think about can you have a country without having geography? Hmm. Because so much of Holland is... is Now, they are the leaders in, in preparing for sea rise, mm-hmm. but the fact is that a great deal of Holland, of course, is below sea level, so it's hiding behind dikes. You look at France, Italy, uh, the United Kingdom, and you see that most of the world's population is along coastal lines and and that sea rise is going to significantly disrupt all of that. Um, But what I see is if you look at the Nordic countries, for instance, they have made a decision to make well-being the, the main governmental social priority. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the United States, we really only have one social priority, and that's profit. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question you can look at any number of government policies and see that profit is more important than human well-being. Mm-hmm. Uh, the relaxation of the EPA regulations by the Trump administration, this obsession with maintaining carbon energy... Um, pollution, Uh, now they're going to allow offshore drilling. I mean, just on and on and on and on. The the relaxation of pollution rules, all that, all of that combines to, that's that's all a signal telling you we value profit for the few more than well-being for the many. So in the future, I think we're going to, we're going to see quite different uh, social outcomes, like you, I I look at social outcome data. I'm not interested in politics except from an anthropological point of view. I'm not interested in what you're saying. I'm interested in what you're doing, and I know that you feel similarly. So when you look at the actual data, I think what you're going to see is massive change, great social disorder, Some countries will be better prepared for this than others, and they will prosper more in this period. Others will go through complete destabilization with all of the civil strife and death and suffering that that's going to create. If we come into the United States, 
153 million people live along the coastlines. The bulk of the population, 318 million people. Uh, we're going to see oh, Florida from Miami down disappear. The Outer Banks of North Carolina, the Delmarva Peninsula. Uh, I mean, you can look at the maps now that are coming out of, of the uh, geological or geographical um, departments of universities and see these where these projections take us one meter, two meters, three meters of sea rise, that kind of thing. And you can see that the East Coast severely impacted. Uh, San Francisco becomes a series of islands. Los Angeles severely impacted. Long Beach, San Diego, Seattle. Um, some states are making preparations for this. You can see along the blue corridor, uh, California, Oregon, Washington, there's increasing orientation toward dealing with this. But in other states, North Carolina, the Louisiana, Alabama, you're not even allowed to talk about climate change officially. So they're just not, they're not prepared. I, I, as, I, uh, as I look at what's going on, Puerto Rico to me is the big alarm bell. Right. I agree with all this. Let me, let me uh, insert something here. I mentioned my friend and colleague Pete Myers in this thing called the FAN Initiative, which is uh, emerging on the web as we speak. And they've made a list of the kind of planetary drivers of change. And I, we've been talking about climate, but let me just run through this list briefly. Climate, the extraordinary carbon, methane, and nitrous oxide pulse, 45% uh, increase in atmospheric CO2 since 1950. The economy, uh, the physical impossible growth continuation model, Debt is at 325% of global GDP. Energy, you know, the end of cheap to extract fossil fuels. 65% um, of oil producing countries have peaked. Soil, 60 crop years left because of topsoil loss and depletion. Oceans, acidification, oxygen loss, change of currents, warming, dead zones, overfishing, 40% decrease in plankton. Toxification, synthetic chemicals, 100% of the biosphere contaminated. Governance, diminishing returns on democracy, failed states, 90% of institutions developed in bygone eras. Behavior, the human brain adopted to very small societies, and 99% of our history we lived in tribes, now we're in this global society. Water, groundwater overdrafting, 40% of food is produced with irrigation. Biodiversity, you know, the extraordinary, a thousand times faster extinction rate than normal. Population, the carrying capacity overshoot. Health, pandemics of chronic non-communicable diseases. 90% of sperm harmed in typical young men. So that's their list, right? Uh, you know, it's not an unusual list. So we've been speaking so far of climate, which is the elephant in the room. But you and I both know, because you cover it in the Schwartz Report, and, and I think I've thought about it for 30 years, that in fact, all of these vectors are interacting. Yeah. And this is a fairly static list of vectors. So for example, this list doesn't include technology. 
Well, technology is an unbelievable driver of change, as we know, you know, with artificial intelligence and everything uh, and so on. Uh, so um, uh, just to take one other example, I'm pretty certain you're familiar with Ted Koppel's book, Lights Out. Mm-hmm. And so Ted Koppel, as you know, has pointed out that the Soviets have mined the uh, American energy grid and could turn out the lights in the United States. Well, that's all very well because we can turn off their lights. We've mined them too. So it's, you know, mutual assured destruction. But what happens when ISIS or other non-state actors that don't have an electric grid to defend get the technology that enables them to turn off the lights? So I deeply appreciate what you've just said about climate. But it seems to me that to take a comprehensive look, we have to look at these vectors that the FAN initiative has described and then mix into it the geopolitical reality, the technology reality, and so forth. And because a lot of people are unwilling to look at this coming collapse because they think, well, if it collapses, we're all just going to die. But it isn't that simple. You know, some people, some areas are likely to live, you know. Mm-hmm. And so... As we look at these collapse scenarios, um, if we don't, it's, it's like looking at death itself. You know, I've worked for over 30 years with cancer patients. So I know from direct experience that if you're willing to spend some time, not just on looking for therapies, but looking at what happens when people die, you can actually have a much bigger impact on improving the situation than you can if you spend all your time looking for therapies alone. You don't mm-hmm. think about death. Well, the analogy is imperfect because this collapse won't be death. It will be a great uh, diminishment in carrying capacity. There will be millions, if not billions, of, uh, of casualties. But what happens if we look realistically at collapse scenarios and ask ourselves if there isn't some great spiritual enlightenment or if there isn't some transformation of consciousness, what do those scenarios look like? And you've described some of them based on climate change alone, but I'm just enlarging mm-hmm. the, the conversation to include the other blades of the fan. Yeah, I mean, I would have, had, had I gone on, I yeah. would have gotten into pretty much the same right. list. But I would have added some additional things, which I think are major players yeah. that we're not looking at. And that don't that most futurists, for whatever reason, don't seem to focus on. You know, I back in the 70s, I was on the MIT Secretary of Defense discussion group on innovation technology and the future and on the Smithsonian uh, study group on innovation technology in the future. And in those days, if you remember, the big issues were, uh, I mean, for instance, Paul Ehrlich's prediction that Mm -hmm. uh, overpopulation, the the inability to create enough food by the, the 1980s and 1990s. I mean, none of those things came true. That's right. So I think that there are four big trends that I would ground all of this conversation. Good. First, being born white will no longer confer privilege. Mm -hmm. Second, 
being born male will no longer bestow dominance. Third, Western cultural values will no longer be the determinant in how international relations are run. And fourth, the rise of neo-feudalism and the transfer of power from nation states to corporate, virtual corporate states. And I cite those four uh, meta-trends because this other thing that I don't think we are properly thinking about when we look at the list that the fan people put up, or and it's as you say, it's not unique to them, and that is what we might call the psychophysiology of politics. That is, these four big trends that I'm describing are driving people into fear fugues. That's, I don't know what, how else to call it. We know that when people go into fear states, that there is a strong correlation with extreme conservative religiosity and extreme conservative politics. So basically what you've got is a, is a large percentage of the population who are in such a state of fear, anxiety, hate. That's where this tribalism, the racism, the white supremacy crisis in, in the United States, for instance, all of that is being driven by these fear states. The other thing that I think we need to, to think about is that we are in a transitional period in science itself. The materialist paradigm is collapsing because it simply doesn't address a number of issues, particularly in the neurosciences, which are emerging almost day by day. The idea of the continuity of consciousness, for instance, the idea that we live not apart from the rest of the world, so that you can think of it only as, as a sort of bank account you inherited and you can extract whatever you want to a world in which we realize we live in a matrix of life in which all consciousness is interconnected and interdependent. And that paradigm change, uh, I would say in the terms of the late Thomas Kuhn, probably the leading philosopher and historian of science in the 20th century, his idea of paradigms going into crisis, um, I think we're in that crisis state, and that that crisis state is a very important component in how that list of things that you, you made will be addressed. I would add another one, which I think is also very important. Part of the neo-feudalism trend is enormous wealth and equity. I mean, we now have, oh, depending on who, which figures you're looking at, you've got th uh, three people in the United States who have as much wealth as 48% as, uh, of the population. You've got 500 people that have as much wealth as, as half of the human race. So, you have this transfer of wealth from the many to a fewer and fewer. It's not the top 1%. It's more like the top 0.001% where you've got just enormous wealth. 
that wealth at the nation state level. For instance, I just saw a paper that, um, what was it, five people have increased their wealth by a trillion dollars um, in the last year alone. And that's the equivalent of the total GDP of Sweden, Norway, and Finland. Mm. So that you've got now, we're now having individuals that are um, coming up to wealth at the national level. Mm. And so that's a huge factor because um, particularly in the United States, Citizens United basically legalized bribery and makes it possible for individuals, either directly or through corporate cutouts, to basically buy the government. And you can see, I mean, anybody who looks at how donations to congressmen go and how they vote can see it's obvious. So when we think about this, oh, and one final thing, and that's the rise of Homo Superior with the development of the CRISPR technologies uh, for genetic engineering, it's now gonna be possible to order up children. You're gonna be able to order up a baby that's as smart as Einstein and as athletic as Michael Jordan and as handsome or pretty as pick your movie, you know, whatever movie star you like. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Stephen Schwartz and Michael Lerner. Now, that's going to be very expensive in the beginning, and therefore it's only going to be accessible by people who are very wealthy. And because it has gene lining, that is, the advantages will be passed on to subsequent generations. I have a very real concern. I don't hear almost anything about it, except if you follow the CRISPR technology research, what you see is the very real possibility of the development of a second hominoid species, Homo superior, and that that will be linked with enormous wealth because it will be expensive to do, and so the people that will do it will be wealthy people. And and that is going to become a, a growing factor as time goes on. Also, the collapse of antibiotic medicine as a result of superbugs, which arise basically because of the pollution that we have put into our environment, uh, which has resulted in mutation and the development of these superbugs. So yes, I think we're gonna have enormous dislocation. Um, Some countries, as I said, you can look at, for instance, the Nordic states who have made well-being the the function of government, I believe, I suspect you probably believe, that the proper function of government is to foster well-being Mm -hmm. from the individual to the family, the community, the nation, and the planet itself. That that first of all, if you do the if you do the social outcome research, what you see is policies which support well-being are inevitably, I can't find a counterexample, they are always cheaper much cheaper, more productive, more effective, more efficient, easier to implement, nicer to live under, and more enduring. And those countries that figure that out, 
I think, are the ones that are going to prosper. Again, to speak in terms of China, I was very struck by the people, the ministerial people that, with whom I spoke, that this creation in China of the idea of the ecological civilization. I mean, the, the, the thing about China is it's run by engineers, not politicians. And they're pragmatists. They have no religious involvement at all that I can see. And so, pragmatically, they recognize that um, carbon energy, for instance, is, um, is uh, a dying idea because it produces enormous health problems. They saw that, as one of them told me, you know, we destroyed our air in Beijing and we learned that that's very expensive. So they're converting as fast as they can to non-carbon energy and plan to dominate that technology, um, both in the manufacturing and in the technology itself. Um, you see that in, in uh, European countries, Holland, France, Germany, the Nordic countries. So I, what I think is going to happen is that all of that list of things that you're describing, the failure of a, a chemical industrial agriculture, for instance, not only because of the loss of topsoil, but because the industrial monoculture chemical agriculture model is destroying the microbial life of the soil um, and um, creating all kinds of problems, the magnitude of which we're just dimly beginning to understand. Um, we, I think, the only way, the, let me frame it differently. The only way through that I can see when I look at all of these trends, these very dystopian trends, the only way through that I can see is a change of consciousness in which we recognize that all life is interconnected and interdependent and that we must work with the Earth's great metasystems, not against them, that we don't exploit and extract but instead develop technologies that operate in accord with uh, the, the alternative non-carbon energy technologies are a good example. I mean, increasingly countries are being able to, I mean, little countries like Costa Rica or big countries like Germany, an increasing percentage of the power that they use is coming from non-carbon. And they're converting as fast as they can Whereas, for instance, in the United States, we're not only supporting carbon, but we're actually supporting nuclear energy as well, which clearly is a, was a disaster from start to finish um, and leaves a legacy that really nobody has any idea what to do with. Uh, I mean, how we're going to deal with nuclear waste, nobody really has a clear idea of what that's, how that's going to get done. Yeah, and I... I share your hope that there will be a change of consciousness. I share your hope that uh, the European model and the Chinese models are successful both in buffering negative impacts and building positive ones. Um, and I, I deeply hope that's true. I just would say that from 40 years of 
engagement, both on the nonprofit advocacy side, but also on the uh, foundation side, virtually all the areas that we have sought to ameliorate with intense effort, we've won battles, but we're losing the wars. Yeah, uh, well, I think that, uh, again, uh, Michael, I, first of all, you have to start from the premise does this policy create well-being? Yeah. And if you don't start with that premise, you start with some other premise, particularly if you start with the premise of profit. As the, Not that I'm against profit. There's no reason that you can't make profit, but you just have to make it producing well-being. So I think that the, the really, I mean, these things, at a certain level, they're so complicated, they're overwhelming. But at another level, they're really quite basic and simple. When I look at all of this stuff, these dystopian scenarios, and believe me, I, I get it. What I, the antidote that I see for all of this is social policies that are oriented to create, foster well-being. When you do that, then you work in conjunction with and not, you don't maintain the fantasy of dominance. This idea that we have dominance over the earth. We don't have dominance over the earth. Um, you look at things like the extinctions that are going on, yes. You look at acidification of the oceans, the breakdown of the ecosystems in the oceans. I mean, on and on, this is, it gets very grim very quickly. So the, really, to me, the question is, are we just simply going to sink into a kind of new dark ages? And I think that's very possible. I, I, I find it quite interesting. I was looking at uh, television shows. And I am struck by the number of shows which are about dystopian futures. Absolutely. Films and television. Yes. So what's going on, which is really fascinating, because I've been talking to friends about this and saying to them, look, you know, um, I've been interested in this stuff for a long time and I'm sort of organizing friends and colleagues uh, to take a, a deep look at the, at the collapse literature. And people, response is, oh yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in that. Some of them are. And the others say, that gives me a headache. I don't want to think about it. You, you know, which are both very legitimate responses. I don't know if you remember that Bill Joy, the chief scientist for Sun Microsystems, wrote an incredible essay for Wired magazine. It must have been 15 years ago, called The Future Does Not Need Us. Yes. And Bill Joy's position that was that we were moving from an age of weapons of mass destruction to an age of technologies of mass destruction. And that biotechnology, nanotechnology, and robotics were examples of technologies of mass destruction. And while the weapons of mass destruction tended to require a large industrial base to build them, nuclear and so on, the technologies of mass destruction could be cooked up by a scientist or a bright guy in a garage lab. Mm -hmm. biotech, nanotech, and robotics. So, you know, the, the weaponization of infectious diseases, uh, you know, the, the, you know, you just go through it. Um, 
it doesn't take much imagination to see that the incredible inequities and just the pure geopolitics of the world mean that there are very bright people in, in very um, adept civilizations with an enormous sense of grievance and that, um, that in the asymmetrical conflicts which characterize our time, they may be willing to do just about anything. You know, I would assume that yeah, they would do yeah, just about anything. Yeah. I mean, you can look at the 2016 election in the United right. States and see how a handful of guys, I don't know that they were in a garage, but right. metaphorically, right. Uh, were able to disrupt the American electoral process. And, I mean, nobody wants to admit to this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we say, oh, yes, the Russians had an effect. And, but mm-hmm. the, the reality is, if you actually look at the data, just mm-hmm. and that's only the data that's been released, is that the Russians manipulated the election and got Donald Trump elected. Mm-hmm. And it's going on again. It's not only in other countries, but I just heard a news report last night about attempts to manipulate electoral activity in states. So, yes, I think that is very true. We asymmetrical conflict is an increasing reality that we are not properly facing. We have this vast military complex that consumes such an enormous amount of the of the budget of the United States, it's basically all for a, 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 a level of conflict that that's probably not ever going to happen. We've built a military for uh, sort of 1960s or 70s conflict when, in fact, just as you say, a handful of guys in a garage somewhere can grab hold of a power grid or can alter the the financial records or can change some, um, uh, you know, cause some medical uh, product to be miscreated or mismanufactured. I mean, just all the places that we are vulnerable. But again, you know, you get back to, well, what is the answer to this? And the answer to this is you have to make well-being the first priority. And to the degree that we do that, we can get through. To the degree that we ignore that or choose other options, we are doomed. And I think one of the things that is are becoming one of, one of the one of the things that are becoming clear to those who pay attention to data and instead of ideology or religion is that there's absolutely no reason that humanity can't be destroyed utterly. I mean, we can go extinct. We may not go extinct in the same way the dinosaurs went extinct, but, there, you know, the Earth will survive. The Earth Some will other survive. Th- but I have a sense, uh, others have pointed this out, that we are a weedy species, humans, <laughs> meaning that we are able to thrive in the most extraordinarily different environments. And my own sense, you know, in other words, our thought, we look at, we look at collapse and 
our thought naturally says the only way out is X. And yes, that's the only way out. But it prevents us from going more deeply into a more granular analysis of different collapse scenarios because we don't know which interactions of which blades of the fan are going to take place. That's right. So the climate thing, which occupies 95% of the oxygen in the room of, of, of conversation about this, leaves out a whole set of other vectors that may turn out to be far more significant in a much shorter period of time. Absolutely agree. Tech. As yeah. I said, I, you know, I, I mentioned, for instance, the homo superior one right. and the linkage exactly. of wealth inequality. I mean, you know, if you if if 500 people have as much wealth as half the human race, you think about that for a second. That's a level of wealth disparity never seen before right. on the planet. And and we do know that wherever wealth Disparity becomes too great. Social instability follows. You're, you're, so before today's you, Schwartz report, yeah, before you that. even get to climate change, right? We may be torn apart by some two or three wealthy people who decide that they think that their country ought to go in a certain direction and basically buy the government. Uh, the United States is a good uh, example of this. I mean, you look at people like the Koch brothers. And their commitment to the the programs that they're already invested in, and you can easily see, I mean, uh, day by day, how the United States is making wrong choices, and how before we even get to the full magnitude of climate change, we may go into another kind of crisis. Again, though, I. You know, I like you, I've spent, I've been at this now for 50 years. When I think about what is the way out, what I get over and over, not based on ideology or religion or philosophy, but simply on the social outcome data, is that the way you get out of the problem that we face as a species, let alone as individual nations, is you must make choices that foster well-being. And, and those countries, those governments, those societies, which can get to a place where they recognize the interconnection and interdependence of all life, they are going to prosper. I'm not quite sure what prosper means, but they're going to do better than those governments, nations, societies, which make other choices. Because whether you're looking at genetic engineering or the failure of agriculture or, um, or climate change or pollution or, as they pointed out, the decrease in, in fertility of human sperm in developed nations, for instance, you look at all of these kinds of things, they all arise because choices were made for other priorities than well-being. It isn't that we didn't know it. It isn't that we didn't have evidence. It's that we chose, we, we chose to ignore that evidence 
and say, well, okay, maybe in the long term, but in the short term, I can make lots and lots of money. And so what's going to be required to get through this, and I, in my view, is a kind of mass change in consciousness. And, and that only happens at the individual level. That is that each individual has to make a different set of choices. You know, I, I tell people all the time when I speak or do an interview like this, I say, if, if you want to change the world, you have to start with the individual. Every day you make hundreds of decisions. If you will commit that every day you make these hundreds of decisions of the options that are available to you, you will consistently and universally pick the one that is the most life-affirming, compassionate, and fostering of well-being, even recognizing that none of them may be good choices, but one of them is inevitably slightly better than the others. And if you will consistently do this, you and tell people that you're doing it and invite them to join you to do it, you can change the world. We know from research that when 10% of any body of people, whether it's a church group or a school group or a nation or a species, when 10% of the population changes its consciousness, the rest of the population, the other 90%, must change to accommodate for that. That's how Gandhi got independence for India without a war. That's how Martin Luther King made civil rights work. It's about individual choice. And if we can get enough individuals through Commonweal, through FAN, through what I'm doing, all of us, I, I see all of us basically as soldiers in the invisible army of well-being. Hmm. And if we can encourage people empower people that they can make a difference simply by the choices that they make day by day. I mean, if you look, when you and I were boys, you went over to somebody's house, there was an ashtray, a pack of cigarettes, and one of those Ronson lighters your mother told you not to fool with on everybody's coffee table. You never see that anymore. If you look at the shift from gay to LGBT, LBGTQ, however many initials, what you're really looking at is a change in consciousness about gender itself. Now, that didn't happen because somebody passed a law. That didn't happen because the pope or the president came out and made a speech. That happened because individual people, just like everybody that's going to listen to this interview, made a different decision. They said, well, okay, uh, you know, I know somebody who's gay or a lesbian or something transsexual. That's a pretty nice person, so maybe I need to change my perspective about this. It changed. When you look at um, the shifts that are occurring, both positive and negative, in, in our culture or indeed any culture, you see that it really gets down to this question of individual choice. And, and so my, my game really is social acupuncture. I want to do whatever I can 
and support people like you and other people as I am supported to help us get to the 10% who choose that which is life-affirming. Yes, and you're, you're very convincing about that. You pointed to the extraordinary role of Quakers in social change movements around the world. Some incredibly tiny percent of the population who nonetheless have been at the heart of every social change movement for a long time. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the Quakers, that's a, a classic example of this. I mean, you have, there are less than 87,000 Quakers in the United States. In the right. whole of American history, going back to the colonial period, less than a million. Right. Probably, I, I, because the numbers aren't very clear in the earlier years, actually probably less than, well, maybe five or 700,000 in the whole of American history. And yet, if you look at every major positive social transformational movement, abolition, penal reform, public education, uh, uh, women's suffrage, the environmental movement, nuclear freeze. You track it back to its origins, and what you find out is there's a little group of Quakers that got it started. The Quakers, to me, are, are the proof of the principle. You look at Gandhi and what he did. I mean, you know, right before he was assassinated, a reporter came up and asked him in 1948, before he was assassinated, he said, my editor sent me here to ask one question. He said, well, what's the question? And you can just see him sitting there in his little dhoti with his spinning wheel up at his ashram. And he said, the question is, how did you force the British to leave India? You had no army. You had no official position. You do not have great wealth. How did you force the British to give up their most precious colonial possession? And Gandhi's answer is the answer. He said, it isn't what we did that mattered, although that mattered. It isn't what we said that mattered, although that mattered. It was the nature of our character, who we were as a people, that led the British to choose to leave India. Now think about that for a second. And then think about this. Gandhi got the idea for civil disobedience. He was a young, um, ambitious barrister in South Africa. And he was feeling affluent. And he went to buy a train ticket. He bought a train ticket for a first-class ticket on a train in South Africa. And when he went to get aboard the train, they wouldn't let him get aboard. They made him ride in the third class because he was an Indian. And it really made him mad. And they put him in jail. And while he was in jail, and we don't know how this happened, he came across um, Henry David Thoreau's essay called Civil Disobedience. Now, this was an essay written by a transcendentalist next to a little pond. I've actually been there. It is a little pond where... Um, he was thinking about how do you create social change? He wrote this thing called civil disobedience. Gandhi read it and realized that that was the critical key. And he went to India uh, to creating a, a movement that would uh, get independence without a war. Uh, Martin Luther King, studying Gandhi, says 
that he read about Gandhi and he read about Gandhi's reading this little essay, Civil Disobedience, and he got a copy and he read it. And that the American Civil Rights Movement was organized on that, on that program. So think about this for a second. One man, disregarded by most people, considered a little eccentric, um, in the 19th century, wrote an essay which changed the course of history in three nations, India, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And so we can't know who amongst us is going to write the essay, the give the talk, make the movie, write the novel, whatever, that's going to catalyze this change in consciousness. But what all of this is telling us, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, what all of this is telling us is that it happens at the individual level and that the way to create change that is wellness-oriented is at the individual level by making choices. The toothpaste you buy, the toilet paper you buy, the gas station you go to, the, the, the electric car you buy, the, all of these thousands of little choices which seem completely irrelevant to anything. And how can I possibly make a difference? I don't have any money. I have no official position. How can I possibly? That's what people think. The answer is, if you choose that which is life-affirming, you tell people you're doing it, you invite them to join you, and enough people do it, just as we have changed our perception of gender, so we can change our perception of governmental policies. And I like that, that, I think, is ultimately yeah. the answer, and the alternative is chaos, dystopia, violence, and death. You know, there's another Gandhi story. I wasn't sure which one you were going to tell, where Gandhi is asked how it was that he always seemed to know what the British were going to do before they did it. And he looked at the questioner and he said, I am that kind of scoundrel. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Mm -hmm. Because again and again, uh, yes, it was the essence of character that enabled Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and others uh, to have that force of character. But they also understood yes. their opponent. Yes. And they had the ability to see the world and think through the world the way their opponents were thinking, um, which I think is a critical dimension of this. Yes, I, I do mean, too. I, I have... In, in the work, you know, we've spent 30 years working on chemical policy reform, both in Europe and the United States and globally. And, you know, I've just been part of this extraordinary effort of, of NGOs around the world. And we won the Stockholm Convention banning 12 of the most toxic chemicals. We were involved in the REACH agreement in Europe, which took the first precautionary approach to uh, chemical management. We worked in the United States at the local, state, and national level for chemical policy reform. But for all that work, um, we have won battles but are losing the war. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Stephen Schwartz and Michael Lerner. 
You know, yes, it's just absolutely, absolutely the case. And every other area that I know that people have worked in, for the most part. Now, the difference, I mean, you've pointed it out, that the great movements that have succeeded, you know, when I look at the 500-year spectrum of hope, it goes from monarchy to democracy, from slavery to freedom, you know, uh, from labor as serfs to labor to unions, uh, you know, human rights, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, animal rights. All of those are expansions of of consciousness and of uh, of legitimacy of of uh, agency uh, to a broader and broader community of people. So those movements have succeeded, but. What those movements also have in common in a curious way, for the most part, you take out some of them, is that they don't threaten specific corporate interests in the same way that chemical policy reform or economic policy reform or things like that do. And on those things, uh, where one is facing the global multinational corporate agenda, trade, finance, taxes, income disparities, things like that, we haven't won in the same way that we've won on the cultural uh, movements. Well, we have not, we have not convinced a sufficiently large percentage of the population mm-hmm. because... We have, I think, having been involved in many of the same things Mm -hmm. you're talking about. I mean, four times in my life, I've been involved with changing history. Mm -hmm. Civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. Transformation of the American military from an elitist conscription organization to an all-volunteer meritocracy in the 70s. Citizen diplomacy in the 80s and the consciousness movement and its first cousin, the environmental movement, Mm -hmm. through all of that. And when I look at that, and and that's what got me started. I started back in the 70s to to really seriously look at what creates social change. That's what got me to the Eight Laws of Change book. I mean, that's why I wrote it. What actually works? over and over, what you see, again, is this: it starts with a little group of people who can catalyze because they can articulate in a, in a way people resonate to. The failure of the social progressive movements, in my view, is that they have not come together in a unified way they're each little fiefdoms. You know, there's the anti-GMO, poison, toxin, agriculture group, and there's this, but they don't have a, they don't have an articulated, broadly comprehensive vision that people can identify with. And, and therefore, you get a few people here, you get a few people there, but what, what's necessary to create this kind of change that we're going to face? And I don't know that we're going to succeed. I mean, that's the truth of it. 
I, there is no guarantee that humanity is going to survive in a, a kind of civilized manner it does now. I mean, it may survive in some sort of tribal dark ages, sure. Uh, you know, not that everybody's going to get killed. or, But, you know, in 1978, I started getting remote viewers to look at the same date in the year 2050. Um, so if today is the, whatever it is, the 4th of January, 2018, so I would say to you, Michael, I'd like you to go forward in time to the 4th of January, 2050. You're standing outside of the place that you spend, um, where you sleep. Now, you'll notice I don't say your house, I don't say your home, your apartment, your condo, whatever. I say you're standing outside of the place where you sleep because I have no idea what that place will look like. Would you describe it for me? Could you go inside? Is food prepared in this same place? Maybe it's not. And if, depending on what you say, if you say yes, then I would say, can you go into the place where food is prepared in this place? And can you describe for me what you see about the, you know, the appliances? Now I'd like you to go to the place where you spend most of your waking hours. You notice I don't say what place where you work or where you're employed or any of those cues. I'm speaking I'm not cueing you. I'm, I'm trying in the most general way to get you to comment. Uh, I'd like you to go to a place where you acquire something. How do you, how do you pay for that? I don't say, you know, how much money does it cost? Or that's the usual sort of things futurists kind of ask. I don't say that. Anyway, I've been doing this from 1978 to 1996. I did 4,000 sessions with people like you, asking them exactly those kind of questions, non-cueing questions. I did it in Japan, in Russia, Mexico, Canada, the United States, Jamaica, all over the world. And what came out of that was a, a quite specific picture. And that gives me some hope because the 2050s describe a world, first of all, everything that they told me has come to pass. They told me that the Soviet Union would disappear. Well, I can tell you, I was just coming out of government in 1978. I had spent a great deal of time in the in, in a special assistant to chief of naval operations, a lot of time looking at scenarios, geopolitical scenarios, military scenarios. Nobody thought the Soviet Union was going to disappear. They told me that there would be a lot of epidemics. I, I, I said, oh, well, then is the world safer? Is, has there been a nuclear war? No, no nuclear war. Well, is the world safer? And they would say, no, the world is much more dangerous. I said, why? Because of terrorism. And, and, um, and uh, well, then, um, are, are there things that cause mass death? Oh, yes, epidemics. The first one will be a blood disease which comes out of Africa that crosses over from primates and kills millions of people. 
That was in 1979, 78. And I went to uh, the uh, deputy director of the NIH, National Institutes of Health, and said, do you know about a blood disease that's going to come out of Africa that's going to cross over from primates and kill millions of people? No, we don't know anything about it. 19, I think 81 was the first accounts in the United States of AIDS. So I, I go into that to say that every single thing the 2050s told me collectively, not each individual, but their consensus view. You know, think of it this way. If we suddenly heard a large explosion outside and we ran out and there was a group of people who were around and what would you do to find out what was happening? Well, you'd take each person aside and say, well, what did you see? What did you see? What did you see? Not everybody would see everything. Not everything they said would be correct. People have biases. Men are more likely to get the car brand. Women are more likely to get the color, that kind of thing. But if you look at it consensually, where the consensual perceptions are, you can get a pretty good reconstruction of what happened or is going to happen. And that's what I did with the 2050s. And the 2050s, as I said, every single thing they've told me so far has come to pass. And the world that they describe in 2050 is a world of small communities in which antibiotic medicine is gone mostly, but uh, genetic engineering has eliminated most chronic diseases. Um, I mean, again, when I was listening to this in 80, 81, 82, 83, uh, people talking to me about, well, somehow they manipulate the, 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 the genes in some way. The, the, I mean, people didn't even have the word DNA. How do they... Uh, uh, they manipulate so that heart disease and cancer are no longer the big issues. They describe a world in which people don't travel very much because uh, of limitations on airplanes, putting out carbon in the upper atmosphere. You can already see that starting. That people go into, I couldn't even understand what they were saying. Today, it's, it's clear, in a virtual reality they would say to me, well, that you put on this kind of apparatus and it's as if all of your senses are reporting, but your locus of where you're located is somewhere in, in electronic space is the way they usually would describe it. Uh, working through some kind of a, something that's sort of you, but it's not you. Well, that's the avatar. And you can mm. see this going on in video games, for instance, and and the development of virtual reality. You don't pay for things with cash. You either put your eye or your thumb or some voice thing. Well, you can already see that happening in China, for instance. You almost no cash. People just take their cell phones, uh, their smartphones, and put them on a little gadget, and it, that's how everything's paid for. So all of these things that they described, the 2050s, so far, everything has been right on, and it contradicted almost everything that the futurists that I knew who were part of these study groups that I was a part of. Did you publish these um, projections contemporaneously? Oh, yeah, yeah, I talked to people. Oh, yeah. So I've been talking words, about these things for quite a while. So, in other words, there are contemporaneous um, descriptions of those predictions. Oh, sure. Yeah. And I have all the records. 
Mm-hmm. That, that's, I mean, yeah. I mm-hmm. mean, from that protocol point of view, yes. Mm-hmm. I have all of the records, many of the audio tapes, and if I audio, was able to audio tape. That, the point I'm trying to make, yes, you can assume that the protocol, the chronology mm-hmm. is unimpeachable, that the, these are all triple-blind experiments, blah, blah, blah. The net-net, the takeaway, is that they describe, they say that prior to 2050, there is enormous social disorder. That there is a change, that the forms of the federal government continue, but that real power has devolved down to the states. I get it. Because the states have made different choices. Let me... um let me take us, uh, we're getting close to the end of our conversation, but let me ask uh, a, a few related questions. Uh, as I've thought about how to look at this, I looked back to um, 1970 when a group of researchers affiliated with the Club of Rome introduced the concept of the global problematique or the global problem, the enormous problem of the 20th century. That was in 1970. And in 1993, 23 years later, a small team that included three of the original architects uh, did a retrospective and found that no significant progress had been made in terms of resolving the root causes of the problematique in the following 23 years. So then... In 1983, you had the Royal Commission on the Environment and Development, known as the Brundtland Commission, which issued its report, Our Common Future, uh, in 87, and brought the term sustainable development into common use. Then in 92, you had the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, which was an effort, the last great effort, to create a North-South partnership to achieve sustainability in which the North would provide resources and technology so the South could forge a less destructive path to development. And then following the Earth Summit, you had a whole series of sectoral summits on human rights in 93, population and development 94, women 95, social development 95, humans settlement 96, and food 96. And then you had the Paris uh, Climate Agreement uh, negotiated just a couple of years ago. Now, this is not a, any kind of comprehensive statement, but what it provides is a perspective that goes from 1970 to 2000, almost 20, uh, 2018. So uh, essentially almost 50 years of the global efforts to create a just and sustainable future. Mm-hmm. And a huge effort was put into these. And yes, there have been positive consequences, mm-hmm. but again, the trend lines have been negative. Why do you think that. that is? Well, I think the reason that is, is that, um, you know, uh, Petty's new book on capitalism, which is uh, the French economist, mm-hmm. um, one of the things he says is that capitalism has never been able, and this is Marx's point, has never been able to resolve the inequality issue, that it's never found a way to mm-hmm. reduce the trend that you've so eloquently described. And so not only can it not do that, but 
we haven't found, and this would be almost a medieval notion, a way of controlling uh, the evolution of technology. So Jacques Ellul, the, the famous French Catholic anarchist, wrote this book uh, called La Technique, which was translated the Technological Society. And his point was that unless there was an incredibly deep change, that technology is an independent force. It's like the economy. Mm-hmm. That really we haven't begun to figure out how to control. So I think, to answer your question, that the reason we are in the place we are, despite enormous efforts to shape it and move it in good directions, I acknowledge absolutely that some of those have been very powerful. We've talked about the social revolutions, women, labor, human rights, all those. Those have moved forward. So there is an evolution of human consciousness toward a broader awareness of who should have agency and self-determination. But the technological industrial drivers have never been brought under control. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and it seems to me that the probability that we will bring them under control is not very high. Well, I, I would agree with that. But, but I would also say to you that the reason we have not brought them under control is that we have not made well-being the first priority. If you look at the societies that are that to varying degrees have made the decision as a society, we are going to make well-being the priority. You can make all the money you want as long as it produces well-being. You look at the Nordic countries, you know, if you remember Bernie Sanders at the second Democratic uh, in the Democratic primaries mm-hmm. um, in the 2016 election, made a comment about n- comparing Norway and the United States, and and I listened to that and I thought, well, you know, that's worth actually putting a little time into. So I climbed up inside of that issue, and I'll just give you one example. I mean, we could spend a whole conversation on this. Uh, Norway has the 11th best healthcare system in the world. Not the best, the 11th best. And at the time that I was doing the research, which is about a year ago, year and a half ago, um, they were spending 7.6% of their GDP on healthcare. We have the 37th best healthcare system. In fact, what that really says is we don't have a healthcare system in the United States. We have an illness profit system. We pay 17.6% of our GDP, more than double what any other country is paying, to get to the 37th. And, and we have dreadful social outcome, infant mortality, maternal mortality, I mean, whatever you want. Just awful outcomes, despite all these expenditures. So i just give you this one example. I could give you many others. What would happen if we would get to number 11 and pay 7.6 of our GDP as Norway does? Not impossible. Well, what would happen would be 
we would have about $1.3 trillion a year would be freed up. Why would it be freed up? Because we would be eliminating the grotesque profit of the drug companies, the creation of the opioid uh, epidemic that has happened in the United States, all of which completely legal. We would, at, if we could get to 7.6% of GDP, 1.3 trillion a year of savings, we could pay for all the early childhood and the elder care and the handicapped people care, all of that. We don't get there. And, and all of the problems that you cite are not being addressed because we have not figured out that well-being is the only priority that will get us through. And it isn't complicated. You sit down and you say, if we pass this policy, what happens to people? It's easily calculable. It's done. I mean, you, the statistics are already available. You don't even have to do anything. What you see very clearly is that when well-being is the first priority, you have better social outcomes and cheaper social outcomes. And you can see this playing out in country after country. You're going to see, for instance, um, Iceland has, has just passed this thing about you must pay men and women exactly the same amount for the same uh, jobs. You're going to see a whole shift in consciousness there as a result of that. I think, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. You know that. So the question, well, the, the question is, why aren't we doing it? I, and so as somebody who studied politics like you, uh, there is um, a considerable difference of scale and culture and civilizational background between the Scandinavian countries, which are small and relatively homogeneous and have their own cultural history, and the United States. I mean, we, you know, so one reality is just that um, it's, uh, it's uh, a rare event for a country as large, diverse, and based on a state system uh, to be able to put in place, um, uh, you know, comprehensive reforms. It's, we've done it to some degree. Look, we did it. Yeah. I mean, did. in our lifetimes. We've done it. Roosevelt created the New Deal. He did. Yeah. He did. So why aren't we doing it? Yeah. That, I think, is when you are talking to futurists, mm -hmm. I think when you get down to the lick log, mm -hmm. you recognize that the creation of well-being is the key to this thing. Mm -hmm. And so the real question is, why aren't we doing it? Is it that we're incapable of doing mm -hmm. it? that we lack the intelligence to do it, that we lack the moral character to do it, that we um, are too weak to do it. But because if you're looking at it at this point in history, which is a very particular point, you would have to say that the forces that don't want that to happen have captured almost the entire political apparatus as well as the economic apparatus. Uh, and they are not only bent in not seeing it move forward, but in deconstructing it. Yes. So at this moment, now, 
history shifts. And uh, I think, to me, one of the actually most hopeful things is if you look at the political views of the millennials, which are becoming the largest voting part of the population, mm -hmm. they are strongly uh, concerned with the excesses of capitalism and with, uh, you know, democratic and uh, positive social values. Yeah. So there's a very real possibility that as they become a more and more dominant force, some of these changes uh, will be possible. Exactly. We're going to see in the 2018 election. Exactly. And then the 2020 elections, which I think are the two last chances as a country. Mm -hmm. Because if we don't make these changes, mm -hmm. I completely agree with you about the millennials. Mm -hmm. If we don't make these changes, we are going to degenerate into, it's not clear, but but a whole series of crises. The failure of the agricultural system, uh, migration, starvation, social disorder. Uh, I mean, all the things, all the dystopian things. So, uh, yes, I think that if you look at the millennials, you see that this is a cadre of people who who have a presentiment about what is coming and have very passionate feelings about this. And it's we're going to see whether our democracy is going to survive. If we do not make these changes, then, then I think um, like a great lumbering beast headed toward extinction, uh, that's what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I... You know, I, I feel a great deal of the time as if I'm living in the late Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely, you know, I mean, the late Roman Empire, everything seemed to be fine except that it wasn't fine. And then suddenly it wasn't there at all. So mm -hmm. um, there's no guarantee that the United States as the United States is going to continue. And I think we need to face that reality. <laughs> the antidote, as I keep saying, is you must change consciousness. Mm. And it gets down to individuals. You know, if you think about it for a minute, the American Revolution, the Constitution was created, what is it, 56 people signed the document. It was really created by a handful, uh, George Mason, Benjamin Franklin, um, um, Madison, a small group of people really conceptualized the document and, and um, made a difference in its creation. Washington, for instance, didn't even speak the entire time of the Constitutional Convention. Only at the very end did he speak. He stood there and recognized that he was the personification of the, the ideal And so he didn't take a partisan side. He just sat in front of all of them and just sat there. And they looked at him and thought about that. But in any case, the American Revolution was not a majority revolution. About, oh, depending on who you talk to and which statistic you're looking at, something between 9% and 13% of the population were actively for it. So again, we get back to when 10% change. So the question to me is, how do we get 10% to commit themselves to well-being? Mm 
Mm-hmm. And that's what your book, The Eight Laws of uh, Change, is about. Yes. And I think all of these futurist dystopian or non-dystopian, doesn't matter, mm-hmm. projections all hinge on what the 10% are going to do. Mm-hmm. And so everybody listening to this interview has a choice. They can either join those who are in support of well-being or those who are in support of short-term profiteering, exploitation, and that that choice made by each individual is going to determine the real future. It need not be dystopian, but right now it is looking very dystopian, but the choice is ours. And the question is, if not us, then who? Mm -hmm. And if not now... Then when? Well, I, as you know, I, I, I have emphasized in this conversation and asked you to dissect with me the dystopian prospects. So we both have a side of us that could go in a much more hopeful direction. Yeah. Uh, but I'm deeply grateful to you for doing that because um, you, as I said, you are rare in the combination of progressive social values and commitments, the capacity to look deeply analytically at what we're facing, and then this deep commitment to consciousness research. And so that triad makes you um, really a rare contributor to, uh, to discourse. So Stephen Schwartz, uh, uh, editor of the Schwartz Report, uh, distinguished uh, academic, uh, researcher, author, um, speaker. Thank you for coming back and being with us again at the New School. My pleasure. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Stephen A. Schwartz and Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams, and our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.